I know I've talked about it before in here. Um, one of the great things of growing up was growing up on a military post, and there were like, lots of different kinds of things, culture, military culture, that I certainly was a part of, of my life growing up. So you always went to the commissary, not the grocery store, and you went to the PX, not Walmart, and um, you went to the barbershop and you got one haircut, and that was the buzz cut every single time, regardless of what you said to the person or regardless who was cutting that day. I think my, one of my favorite spots, just looking back, I think one of my favorite spots on post to visit, though, was the military clothing sales. I love going there with my dad, and I don't know why I liked it so much, but I think it was just the uniforms and the gear and the ribbons and the insignia and just kind of living in that world for a little bit as a kid. Like, that was a special place, and uh, I remember it remember it well. I guess that could be a reason why I've always been drawn to this passage in Ephesians 6. I don't know, but I have been drawn to it in a discussion of the equipment and the uniform, the gear that we wear in our spiritual battle. If you're joining us for the first time today, we are in a series called Battleground. And in this series, we've been looking at the armor of God. We've been reminded that we need to be strong and we need to stand firm. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Ephesians 6.10 has said. If we're diving in there, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Clearly, clearly the Lord is on our side. He is with us, and He is for us, and He's given us the equipment. This is called the whole armor of God. He's given this to us as we face battles so that we could be strengthened, so that we could stand firm. He's given us His armor. We're in a battle. We face enemies. We read more about that in verse 12. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We wrestle, did you notice, not against this, but against that. I, this is week three and growing in a deeper appreciation of what that battle entails. And what I've asked from the beginning is not that we have some generic category for spiritual battles, but that we actually realize where and really think through carefully, where does the battle meet us? Where does it meet you? Where do you face it? Because likely with all the, I mean, the numbers of people here, the battlegrounds are going to look a little bit different for each one of us. So where is it meeting you? Where in your day, where in your heart, where in your life is it meeting you? And by that, I, I mean a battleground is where it becomes hard to do right and think right and easier to just go with the flow. The battleground is a place where it's harder to retain joy and hope and easier to fall into doubt and just unbelief in who God is and what He's promised. It's harder to rely on the Lord and it's easier to just say, you know, I'm just going to put hope in myself and find my way out of this. This is the battleground. It's, it's harder to endure and easier to quit. That is the battleground. So my guess is there are lots of battlegrounds, and what we find in this passage is they're not even so much about 
individuals, maybe the family member or coworker. I mean, there is a connection there. There's certainly play, that plays into it. But we wrestle ultimately not against them, but against something much, much darker. Where is your battle in your heart, in your mind, in relationships, in your soul, in your feelings? Where is it? Where is it for you? In Ephesians 6.13, it says this. Again, as we keep reading, therefore, take up again the whole armor of God so that you may be able to resist or withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand firm. And then it begins to list pieces of this armor. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What we're discovering is actually not that super mystical. It's pretty straightforward. There are qualities like truth, qualities like righteousness. Again, those are pretty straightforward. Basically, the spiritual battle, it, this is what the Christian life is all about, this truth and righteousness and peace and salvation. This is where the spiritual battle is faced. This is what the battleground is all about. And last week, we talked about fastening on the belt of truth and even looking upstream to, like, what influences our view of truth? Because there's, there are things that just seem true to us. They feel right to us. They we believe in them, we buy into them. So the question is, upstream of that, we better be making sure the sources that are informing what we believe to be true, we better, we better know those are reliable sources, fastening on the belt of truth. And today, we're reminded of another piece in that armor, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. You can imagine the breastplate would protect all the vital organs, so much so that the only way you're able to accomplish the mission that you're called to is if you, you don't get wounded there. You have to stay strong there. So the breastplate of righteousness. And when we think about righteousness, frankly, if you were to do some sort of Google search or if you had the, the Bible software that could take you into or, or an app that and you just said, how many times is righteous or righteousness used in the Bible? It would be, depending on the translation, it would be in, in the hundreds this is a regular topic of the Bible. To understand it is extremely important. And the way righteousness is used, it's actually used in several different ways in the Bible. Underlying all those uses at its core, at its core, all, all the uses of the Bible, at, at its core is this. Righteousness is all about meeting a standard. So at its core, again, it means much more than that, but at its core, it is about meeting a standard. And lots of things in our world are said to like, well, we need it to meet a standard. So there are little silly labels on your toothpaste saying it meets a certain standard by the whatever, whatever. And there are all sorts of things that get more important than that. Clothes, you, 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 you reach into a pocket of a new pair of pants and there's a sticker that says it has been inspected by whatever, whatever. And you go, okay. So what is that communicating? It's communicating a standard has been met. When you get equipment, often there's a seal or a label saying, this meets the standard. All sorts of codes and promises to remind us the standard has been met with what you are dealing with. We have all sorts of tests that are really aimed at trying to meet the standard. So whether it's the MCAT or the LSAT, whether it's the CPA exam, whether it's licensure or certifications, and probably lots of people in our congregation are, are working toward that, 
or have been working toward that or trying to keep the standard, trying to keep the certification, trying to keep licensure, or trying to, trying to gain that for, for some reason in some particular field. And often those, or at least they're designed to help ensure standards have been met here. You can trust, you can trust this person to do this job. As we, as we work through kind of the idea of meeting the standard when it comes to Scripture, it often falls into a couple different fields. So one of those fields would almost be like a legal field. Does, when righteousness is used, is, is the standard met that someone has done what is within the law? Are they righteous? Have they met the standard of the law says to do this and they've done it? The law says not to do that and they've not done that. Have they met the standard? Are they righteous? But it's not only within kind of a legal framework, it's also in a moral framework. Are they doing what's right? Have they done what is right? Have they done what's right instead of what is wrong? That is meeting the standard. So here we are, human beings. What is the standard that God has designed us to meet? What is the standard that God has designed you to meet? What has he called you to meet? What standard? He's created every single person in his image. And he's given a command to all of us to meet this standard, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. That's the standard. That's what you were designed to do, to love him, to be devoted to him with everything in you. Every human being is also designed to not only love him with all of our heart, but to love our neighbor as ourself. Also, as you keep reading in Scripture, you read other standards of like whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. 1 Corinthians 10 would say, do everything, not for your own name and your own reputation, but for God's glory. These are the standards that we're called to meet And by the way, when we live by that standard, when we love God with everything we have, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, when we live for his glory, whether we eat or, or drink or whatever we do, what comes with that are things that are true and good and beautiful and life giving. I mean, that is what flows out of that sort of life pursuit when we meet that standard. That is basic righteousness. So, whatever it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which I want us to think about and talk about, it definitely, all of this is in the mix. So, this idea of righteousness. Here's where I'd like for for us to go just for a moment with our time. I'd like for us to think about the backdrop of righteousness, and particularly putting this breastplate of righteousness on, the gift of righteousness, and the response of righteousness. So I want to start off with the backdrop, then move to the gift, and then talk about the response. The backdrop of any discussion of righteousness in this world is actually a discussion of unrighteousness. That's the backdrop we have to have. If we're going to understand righteousness clearly, we have to realize we live in a world that is unrighteous. And we see it all over the place. Things deviate from the standard. This world is a mess. Things in this world, you just take, you know, you just take the headlines for a week and you're going to see evidence that we live in a world that falls well short of the standard of loving our neighbor, loving God, living to his glory. When standards aren't met, so a building's not not built to code, and some accident happens, 
and the building wasn't built to code and someone like looked the other way or took a shortcut, often that's going to be a mess and then often we know in our society what that's going to mean, someone's getting sued. That's just the way it's going to work because the standard wasn't paid attention to. But think about this world that doesn't meet God's standard everywhere we look. So do we have to look that hard to find this world that is not filled with love of God, but actually is filled with all kinds of pride, all kinds of anger, all kinds of lust, all kinds of rebellion? Is it that hard to look and find a world that says, here's good and evil, but we're going to call good evil and evil good? We're going to reverse all that? Is it that hard to find evidences in our world of unrighteousness, things that don't meet God's standard? Is it that hard to look at what our culture values and puts a price tag and says, this is really, really important. This, it doesn't matter so much. We go, man, those are all flipped sometimes. This is a world of unrighteousness everywhere we look. Can anyone really live in this world with sex trafficking, with abuse, with violence, with unrestrained materialism and go, uh, this world's a righteous place. No one thinks that. We know better. When there's lies and bribery, when there's arrogance and filthy language all over the place, we know better. This is, this is the backdrop of which God wants us to fasten on to the belt of truth, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It is a world that is unrighteous. It's actually a major theme in Ephesians. So if we want to go, well, you know, back then things were better. It's like, well, not back in the time of Ephesus. And when this was written, chapter 2 talks about a world an unrighteous world that is filled with death. I, I wrote down death, disobedience, alienation, hostility, and a world where people live without hope and without God. That's chapter two. Chapter four is a world where there are deceitful schemes. So what that means is there are paths that are dead ends and like total train wrecks that, that we think are actually going to lead us to something great, and they don't. They never do. Deceitful schemes, there's futility, ignorance, callousness, impurity, immorality, and all of that's celebrated according to chapter 4 in Ephesians. Chapter 5 tells us of a world of darkness, deceit, and drunkenness. Anybody want to argue? Like it, we, we, know, we know this is the world, an unrighteous world. So far from the standard, this world is unrighteousness. And so much so that I think if you disagree with that, you're going you're gonna to miss every sort of premise that the rescue of Jesus Christ is built on. If you're going to say, no, I think the world's a pretty good place. There's not much more hope to offer because I, I feel like I open your eyes. The personal backdrop. So it's not like, well, there's a lot of problems out there, but even in our own worlds. So that means unrighteousness when it's like in my life or your life or friends' lives or family members' lives means heartbreaking situations that affects individuals, affect families. The unrighteousness of this world causes victims, some of which I heard about this week, and just some tragic, hard, hard to hear, hard to deal with circumstances. Overdoses, foolishness, absentee dads, unfaithful spouses, injustice, prejudice. I mean, it's just a mess. It's a mess. The backdrop on any discussion of righteousness in this world starts here. This is a world actually filled with unrighteousness, a world that's a mess. So who is going to get us out of that world? Who is going to get us out of this world? Who will help? Earthly speaking, let me just make sure we realize, earthly speaking, there are no good options. 
to pull us out of that mess. And yet, we will all be told in 2024, when the election time comes, which will undoubtedly be the most important election of our lifetime, and there will be five, six, seven, 17, 35 people that are going to say exactly what I say, the world's a mess, but you can trust me and I'm going to bring you out of it. I'm going to deliver a world that's perfect and right. But they won't be able to change the world for all the good that they might do. They won't be able to rescue us and get us out of unrighteousness. It is, it is too corrupt. So we don't we can still vote. We just don't buy everything they're selling. We just recognize the world's too broken a place. There is only one person who can bring us out of that unrighteousness, which means the backdrop helps us appreciate the gift. Again, we start with the backdrop, but then that helps us appreciate the gift. And the gift is the righteousness of Jesus. The Lord does something about this unrighteous world. And it's good, for, good news for us that he did so. And he doesn't just do something about this world, kind of from a distance, but he did something for this world personally. Personally, the Lord shows up. Scripture tells us that he's the Messiah, and he shows up with the breastplate of righteousness. So Isaiah 59, which is written... I want to say hundreds of years before, it's at least like, what, 600, 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 59 gives us this vision, this picture, talking about the Messiah. He put on, the right, on righteousness as a breastplate. And he put on the helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The Lord came to make, make things right in a world that was a mess. What does that look like? What does it look like when the, world, when, when the Lord comes with his breastplate of righteousness and belted up with truth? What does that look like? Does it look like assembling generals to establish like a military coup? Does it look like writing position papers for a think tank to say this is the way the world should be? Actually, what it looked like when righteousness came to Palestine 600, 700 years after Isaiah was written, it looked like goodness, authority, love, faith, and humility. It looked like Jesus because it was Jesus. That is the Messiah coming to this world of unrighteousness. I did something I normally don't do yesterday. So I never think it's like a great idea to play Bible roulette. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to like whatever I open to. And then that'll be my verse for the day. I never think that's like a great way to read the Bible. But I did decide yesterday that I'm just going to pick a chapter in the Gospels. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'm going to pick a chapter and just look for if the Messiah comes in righteousness and those four stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are really telling one story, if they're all about the Messiah coming in with a breastplate of righteousness, then we should be able to see his righteousness in action. So again, just by chance, I happened to look up Luke chapter 8. I had my app open. I had Luke, which chapter? 8. Let's begin reading in verse 1. And I began reading in Luke chapter 8. You're welcome to read it later. It'd be a great way to spend some time after the picnic. It starts with Jesus giving really, really good news, a righteous message. Good news has arrived. The kingdom has come. And then it talks about Jesus' righteous interactions with ladies. Ladies whom he always treated with respect, healing them, relieving them from demonic oppression, giving them fresh starts as they needed it. This is what it looks like when righteousness shows up 
and a piece of ground on this earth. This is what it looks like when someone who completely meets the standard comes to this earth. Jesus in Luke 8 tells a story reminding us that his mission is to scatter God's word with the intention that it's going to produce real change in people's lives. Interesting, Luke 8 is also the story, in in that chapter is the story where he holds the winds and waves to a specific standard. It's like they're blowing like crazy. It's a violent storm. And on that day, in that boat, Jesus said, no one, no one is going to lose their life. No one is going to have to deal with this. And he speaks and actually the winds and the waves obey his voice. He determines the standard and he says, this is what they're made for and speaks into a broken world his power and authority. Later in the chapter, he faces a victim of demonic activity and he changes that man instantly and permanently. And the town he's in doesn't know what to do with it because righteousness has arrived. And it means that person who is so troubled now has his life completely changed permanently. His life now will be lived to the glory of God. That's what it looks like when righteousness comes. A 12-year-old has her life stolen away in Luke 8. And Jesus comes in with a simple command. To the parents, he says, believe. And to the young lady, he says, come alive. And she's alive. She's alive. Because righteousness has come. A woman who would have been constantly not clean enough to participate in temple worship is changed in a moment. And what he says to her is, your faith has saved you. Peace has come to your, to your world. The standard is met. Here's what it looks like. Jesus meets the perfect standard of God again and again. Love, compassion, fear is cast out. Faith is encouraged. There's power. There's freedom. There's reconciliation. There's growth. There's life. There's hope. Jesus brings it all. That's what righteousness looks like. And the travesty of all of that is when Jesus comes, and, and Jesus would do the same thing in our midst, in, in, in present, in human form again. But in the travesty of all times, righteousness should have been welcomed and enjoyed. And instead it was rejected and actually punished. The one who embodies righteousness gets, sent, gets sentenced. Think about that. So you, you heal a 12-year-old girl. You restart lives of ladies and men who need a fresh start. And here's what you get for that. We think you deserve to die the most horrific, shameful death. And it really feels like unrighteousness is one because the life of the only one who's ever been perfectly righteous got cut off. And it feels like, man, that's what the world does. That's what this unrighteous world does even when righteousness shows up incarnate, like in the flesh. But then that script really is flipped, isn't it? Because in in the most amazing thing, That death of Christ was a sacrificial substitutionary act. Actually, him stepping in the place of unrighteous sinners. The very ones who were nailing him to a tree. Stepping in that place. Stepping in our place. Something else is happening through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. I could have picked many verses. Let let me just share this one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to be sin. So that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, there is this great exchange that has taken place and we receive the righteousness of God. Jesus gives his righteousness. What a gift, which is why... In Christ alone, we sang it yesterday at the men's breakfast, we sang this gift of love and righteousness. We didn't sing anything about earning it. 
We said it's a gift. It's why we would sing dressed in his righteousness alone is the only way I stand faultless before his throne. It's why we'd say this is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We don't have righteousness of our own. We're told to love God, love our neighbor, and do everything to his glory. And we do completely the opposite. So this is what I know about you because I know it. it's true about me too and true about all of us is that we all have these stubborn habits of sin and we tend to judge others by their stubborn habit and we tend to excuse ours. This is, this is how we fail to meet the standard. There are times when we're, doing, we're just not doing what we know to be right. We're not speaking up. We're not addressing it. We're not leaning in. There are times where we say, I know this will harm me. I'm just going to do it anyway because I want to do it. And nobody can tell me otherwise. This is what we bring. We don't bring righteousness. We don't bring meeting the standard to this whole equation. We have attitudes that are arrogant. Sometimes we go, you know what? I'm not going to put myself out there. I've risked way too much. It justifies me only thinking about myself more. Sometimes we, depending on the person, talk down to this person, treat them as less. This person we think can help us, so we treat... You know, I mean, we do these things. We want to be bigger. We want to be more pampered. We even want to have permission to sit and sulk if we want, and we want everybody on board with that. If I want to throw myself a pity party, you just need to get on board. And frankly, frankly, if we're true about it, we even want God to be on board with the agenda we're writing. And if not, we'll just recreate a God in our image to tell us, it's okay. You do you. You be you. This is who we are on, we are on our own. We're so far from righteousness and Ephesians doesn't gloss over things actually the words are like the wrath of God are coming on the children of disobedience but again for all of our unrighteousness we rely on Jesus exclusively and we fall under I I don't know if it's the, the best picture but we fall under the umbrella of his righteousness so that Let me make it as clear as I can. If you're relying on Jesus for what you never could manufacture on your own, then there's a word for you. Relying on Jesus and the word for you in this room today is you are righteous in Christ. It just blows us away. We are righteous. We, in Christ, have met the standard. Jesus has made individuals righteous even when we're flawed. Jesus has made family of believers like ours righteous even when we're a mess. And the backdrop helps us appreciate the gift, the amazing gift that the life and work of the righteous person Jesus has credited permanently to us. So we have a backdrop and a gift, but that gift is is calling for a response. Calling for a response. And the response is something ought to be put on, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. What I want you to know is receiving the righteousness of Jesus is actually, it's actually just the starting point. It's actually just the starting point of God's work of righteousness in your life. He's really recreated something new in human beings. A couple of verses in Ephesians that help us see, like, okay, so when we we are credited with, God's, with Christ's righteousness. Now we move forward in that. Look at Ephesians 4, 23. And again, I don't have the time to paint out the whole context, but it says we're actually renewed in the spirit of our minds and we're putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God, created in what? In true righteousness. So there's a new self that's being created in true righteousness and holiness. 
Ephesians 5.8 even says at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk or live, conduct yourself as children of the light. What does that mean? For the fruit of light is found in everything that is good and right. The word is again and true. So you can discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You're walking, living, conducting your life in a new way. In a way that Paul says, this is the word for it. It's righteous. It's righteousness. So you've been gifted righteousness, and now you're living that out in righteous activities. This is meant to change you. You become righteous, not not righteous in a self-righteous way, looking down on others and feeling pretty good about yourself. You become righteous, not in a legalistic way, trying to work off the debt you feel like you owe God by inventing and keeping all the rules and making sure everybody else does, and if not, you give them dirty looks. Like, it's not that kind of righteousness. We're actually called to bring righteousness to our world. Actions and words that meet the standard of loving God, loving our neighbor, bringing glory to him. Christ's righteousness in action. In Newark, Delaware, in 2021, Christ's righteousness in action. Going forward, becoming us becoming the, the person that God has created and now recreated us to be in homes and conversations and friendships and activities filled with righteousness so that just in, in this life and in this life and in this family, in this home, in this place, like there, there is righteousness going forward. What do I do? What do I need to say? How can I act for the good of others? How can I work to make this situation better? It's tough because we're still living in a world that is unrighteousness. So even as we try to do the right thing, meet the standard of loving God, loving our neighbor, doing all for his glory. We're going to take on hurt and pain and mess and things that are false and in the middle of, of all that. We live out the righteousness that God has given to us in Christ. A life where, yeah, we have the stubborn habits of sin, but we are fighting them. We are confessing. We're not filled with judgmentalism, a life where we're speaking up for the good and benefit of others, saying and doing the right thing even if it costs us. A life of righteousness where we're looking at the things that take away our heart from God and and we're saying to them, no, we're fighting lust and we're fighting fear and we're fighting everything else. A life where we humble ourselves and look for ways to serve. Some of you work in some dark, dark work environments and it's hard. Some of you are are trying to live out your faith and live all this talk about righteousness. You're trying to live it out in a school where 95%, maybe it's higher, cares nothing about your righteousness and it's hard. Maybe God has designed you to be the one voice that says, I'm going to do what's right. I, I am going to love my neighbor as myself. In this one place, like righteousness happens, leaning into hard things. Blessing people with our words, building them up, not with flattery, but with the words Jesus might speak. We sacrifice, we say, here am I, send me. My life, my mission is not going to be, like my my whole aim in life isn't going to be to get to upper middle class. But I I am going to use whatever God gives me, whatever class I am, however all that sorts out in this world. 
It's not my own. My life is the Lord's. I don't pretend it's easy. And you have a battleground, maybe two, maybe three, maybe ten. Your situation is messy and complicated, but Christ's righteousness came as a gift to you. It's recreated you with new motivations and new desires. Now you go into that battleground, actually not defenseless, but with help. So take up the breastplate of righteousness. A lot to process. And so I want to leave you with a couple things like, okay, it's nice that we take up or put on the, the breastplate of righteousness. How might we do that? I want to give you two things. I want to leave you with a sentence and then a mental picture, and then we'll be done. Here's the sentence, and it's a starting point. It may be something that seems really simple when the battle is like really complex, but I read it this week. I felt like it could be helpful. This comes from a, an author who passed away actually not too long ago. David Pallison said this, Christ's battle strategy is to do what is right and good and to say what is true and helpful. And I thought, man, that and maybe you take a picture of that or write that down, but I feel like in my battleground where I, where I struggle, where I go, I don't know even what I'm supposed to do. I, this is a starting point of, of what I'm supposed to bring, what am I supposed to do. I can do what is right and good, and I can say what is true and helpful. And maybe you go, well, Curtis, there are a lot of right things. I don't just think of one. I think of ten. Well, okay, do one. Do two. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know which one to do. Well, Talk to a brother or sister. Pray about it. You have the Holy Spirit. You have prayer. It's something God has given you. He's told you to ask for wisdom and then move forward in confidence, doing what is right and good and saying what is true and helpful. Do I think that solves everything? Not by a long shot, but it's a starting place. And sometimes in a battleground, we need a starting place. So I definitely want you to have that sentence. And then I also want you to have a mental picture. And that is on the day when the righteous one comes back. Because I think lots can be fueled here. Because one day Jesus does. Jesus has promised to come back. And all those who are covered by his righteousness are actually spared the judgment of God. He's experienced, Christ Jesus has experienced the judgment of God for sin on the cross. And everyone resting in that, they're rescued and they're saved. They're declared righteous. What the Bible also says is those who've rejected that and said, I'll do righteousness not not through Jesus, but through my own effort. They're actually left without that protection in this world that is a mess, and they're not covered, but they face judgment alone and are left in a world of darkness. But for those who are relying on the righteousness of Jesus, a picture emerges of a day coming where everything that I just said about how awful our world is, where that changes. And I love the... I love the words of 2 Peter 3.13. Here's the image I want you to have in your mind. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness just inhabits it. It's everywhere we look. Everything is good and right and true and helpful. Everything. Everything. We're waiting for that. We're not there from now until that day. We are an outpost. You are as a believer. We are as a church. Going into this battle, this evil day, with Christ's righteousness in action. But we're headed to the day with the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Help us, Lord, to in the battleground that is a mess, 
that is hard, that is a struggle. Help us to not only take up the belt of truth, but also take up the breastplate of righteousness so that we will do what is right and good and say what is true and helpful. And where we are weary of fighting, where we are weary of the battle, give help and relief and grace and mercy. We look to you because all we have is you. So we pray for you to be present with us, giving us strength, helping us stand firm. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.